as sinners, as, as broken people, and God, yet you call us your children. And God, would you be with us now as we prepare our hearts to hear your word and to hear your truth. Be with the speaker, be with Mike. Prepare our hearts. God, your word is good and we pray that it does not return void. Be with us now. You know, I pray. Amen. Today's passage is from the book of Hebrews. I'm going to actually start a little bit before the, uh, the passage in uh, chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, so the high priests of the past, uh, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you would just briefly pray for me, uh, pray for me, pray with me. Well, you could pray for me. That's what I'm about to do. Pray with me. Lord, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, I pray that you would um, be operating now through your word to change us and shape us into who you desire us to be. Amen. So today we continue in our series on Hebrews. If you're here last week, you'll remember that We've split chapter 8 in half, uh, and just to make things even more confusing, we've turned it upside down. So last week, I uh, preached the last part of, of Hebrews 8. This week, I'm preaching the first part of Hebrews 8. Uh, so last week, we talked about how Jesus brings the Old Covenant to its climax. That is also the point of, of this sermon today. If you'll remember, the whole reason why we cut the chapter in half and turned it upside down was because I, I wrote just a whopper of a sermon uh, and so in the hopes that we would end last week's serv- service before this week's service, we split it in half. Uh, so it's the same main point. Christ brings the Old Covenant to its climax. Uh, but last week we did point one, so the climactic covenant. Today we're talking about the climactic sanctuary and the climactic sacrifice. But it's really all just one giant sermon. So let's go ahead and, and jump in uh, with the climactic sanctuary. Let me reread uh, the a couple of the verses that I, that I just read, just to, to keep it fresh in our mind. 
So I'm going to start at, at, at verse 3. Again, we're going up, it's upside down. It's an upside down chapter, so we're going from the back to the, the beginning. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, like the other priests, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And I'll actually stop there. So I want to set this up a little bit by talking about the Greek philosopher Plato. And I think it'll become clear why it is that I'm bringing him up in, in a minute. But before I jump into him, there's a strange thing that we see in this passage. What you see is this comparison that starts to happen between what the old priests were doing and what Jesus has done through his priesthood. What You get this comparison between the sanctuary that those old priests served in and the sanctuary that Jesus is serving in. And the author in Hebrews uh, describes the old way as the earthly covenant or the, the earthly sanctuary and what Jesus is now doing as the heavenly priesthood, heavenly sanctuary, heavenly sacrifice. So you get this comparison that starts happening throughout the, the passage. You see it also in this interesting thing where, where uh, like we read, it says that God, that, there, that God has established a true tent, a true tent. There's the tabernacle that was on earth, but God, not humanity, but God has made a true tent. So there's this, this strange comparison that starts to happen in the chapter, and I want to talk about the implications of that first before we actually get to explaining it. So that brings us to Plato. Uh, so Plato was a Greek philosopher. Uh, I think he lived around the 500s BC. Uh, hugely prominent. Um, Alfred North Whitehead, a, a more modern philosopher, once said that all of philosophy could, could be called just a footnote to Plato. The, the guy was hugely prolific. And, and not only that, but he just seemed to talk about everything and anything, even if he didn't really have any idea what he was talking about. He would just talk about it. You know, so the, the scope of Plato's work is just giant, and, and all philosophy seems to just kind of pick different topics that he started talking about and, and obviously take it to, to different places. So he's obviously a huge, towering philosopher. He was the mentor of Aristotle, so you might have heard that name too. He had a school in, in Athens called the Academy. So uh, there's this painting of Plato by the artist Raphael, and it's uh, of the Academy, so it's this you know, big stone staircase, and there's all these students that are, that are like reading or they're arguing together. And so it's all this activity, um, but in the center of the activity, at the top of the staircase, is Plato with his student Aristotle, and they're having a disagreement. Uh, in the painting, Aristotle's hand is pointed outward. He's sort of indicating what's out in front of us. And so Raphael's very intentional. He's showing us what Aristotle thought. Aristotle sort of thought what was in front of us was all there is. He was very materialistic in the sense of just saying it's, it's what we observe. The reality is what we observe. The sorts of things that, that we should be thinking about, talking about, it's, it's what we can sense. It's the sensible world. That's it. He did believe in a God, but God, for Aristotle, was more the, the guy who turns the crank that makes the world go round. That's kind of the God of Aristotle. So Aristotle in the painting is pointing right in front of him. But next to him is Plato, and Plato has his finger pointing up. And the reason why is because Plato did believe that what we saw and sensed was real, but he didn't think it was all that there was. He thought there was an even higher reality. That everything that we sense, yes, yes, it's real, but it's not all there is. There's more than just the sensible world. 
So he, he, in fact, he would call the sensible world a shadow. He thought everything that we see, it was, it was like a shadow. Uh, so he, he drew this one analogy at one point where he imagined it, uh, like, what if there were these people who had been raised in a cave, and they, they were shackled, their backs are up against a cave wall, and they're shackled, and they've been there since the beginning of their lives. This is all they know. And this is not the sort of cave that leads into a passageway. It's the sort of cave that just sort of is a wall. And so their whole lives, they've had their backs against, the, against one wall, and they're staring at another wall. Now, above and behind them is the opening to the cave. So they, they can't put their heads back and feel the opening, right? So it's a little bit above them. Uh, but above them is the opening to the cave. And so they're looking at this opposite wall. But as the sun shines, what ends up happening is shadows get ca- cast on that opposite wall. Shadows of people, of animals. They might hear things. Maybe there's a building there that over the course of the day sort of pans over the wall. But the whole of their reality are the shadows on that wall. And so Plato said that wall is real. They're seeing something real, but that's not all that reality is. Instead, it's the shadow world. And what what liberation would look like for these people would be to become unshackled and then to be helped out over the wall of the cave, the opening of the cave, into the real world to actually see the things that are casting the shadow. And so that's, that's what Plato always argued. And so the thing that he thought was casting the shadow of the world itself was this, were these things called the forms, uh, which were these transcendental, eter- eternal truths, like unity, truth, goodness, beauty. All of the world sort of participated in them. That was kind of an interesting idea. But uh, in any case, we can see right off the bat that there's things wrong with how Plato saw things. For one, the forms are basically ideas. Unity, truth, goodness, beauty. These are ideas. Uh, they're, more, of course, more than ideas, but uh, what does it really mean for us to, like, be liberated to experience those, right? So Plato had to try to figure that one out, and, and in the end he was like, well, you, you get rid of the body entirely, and then you're just a mind, and you can contemplate the forms, but it's like, but if you're just a mind, then how are you, just, how are you still yourself without a body? So there's lots wrong with the way that you saw things, right? So this is not an endorsement of Plato uh, across the board. But, but... There's a lot that he got right. There's a whole lot that he got right. The world that we see is not it. It's not all there is. And in fact, it would be kind of arrogant to say that it was. So a lot of times you, you run into folks that will make this, this assertion where they'll say, reality is essentially what we can sense, observe, and measure. They add measure because there are some things we can't see. There are things that we can only see through a microscope or like quantum particles and stuff like that. You know, but reality is whatever we can sense, observe, or measure. The problem is, is that if there was a, something out there that you couldn't sense or observe or measure, you would never know. And so it's sort of arrogant to just say, this is all that reality is. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And to prove that that you shouldn't be arrogant in that way, take quantum particles. We didn't know those existed until relatively recently, right? So if we had said all that there is is just the big stuff, then we would, we, you know, we would have missed all the really, really little stuff, unless there was somebody out there saying, actually, I think reality is more than this, just this, right? So what we see is not all there is. There is a higher reality. And I think Plato uh, was, was also right to think that 
that higher reality is something that transcends even the world itself, the, the universe itself. It's higher than everything. And I think the author of Hebrews agrees with him, and he calls it the difference between the earthly and the heavenly. There is more to reality. There is the earthly, and there is the heavenly. So here's how one pastor describes it. Reality is sort of like a two-story house. So it's kind of like the house in Downton Abbey. You know, in those old English manor houses, you would have the servants' quarters downstairs, and you could do all your living there. There were bedrooms, there were uh, toilets, you know, there was a kitchen, there was... You could do all your living in, in the downstairs house. But even though you could do all your living in the downstairs house, it would be a mistake to say that that was the whole house. And in fact, there would even be signs in the downstairs house that there was an upstairs house. So, for instance, if you walked into the kitchen, there would have been a dumbwaiter. So you could prepare food and then lay it on this thing and then tug the rope and watch it go upstairs. And then after a while, bring it back down and there'd be no more food. Right? And so you could accurately judge from that that there's something more than the downstairs, right? There were signs in the downstairs house that this isn't the whole house. There's a, this is a two-story house. That's the way that the scriptures <clears throat> imagine reality. The scriptures are inviting us to, to recognize that reality is a two-story house. It is the earthly, yes, but it's also the heavenly In this passage, we, we're, we're talking about, the, 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 the author talks a lot about the tabernacle, the tent. We covered this a lot in our Exodus series. Everett did a great job um, talking through the, the tabernacle, and um, particularly interesting was, was when he laid out the dimensions of it. I'd never, never realized what, that, what the size of it actually was. But you'll remember that there's this tent called the tabernacle. There's this big courtyard around it. There's an inner chamber where the priests do their work, and then inside that inner chamber is an inner, inner chamber. which was called the Holy of Holies. And it was understood that in that inner, inner chamber, the presence of God was dwelling. Uh, So you can kind of imagine it like this. So uh, the presence of God being in the Holy of Holies, this is a way to imagine it. So we're talking about the earthly and the heavenly. Imagine those as two circles in a Venn diagram. I've talked about this one uh, in the past. That the earthly and the heavenly are kind of like two circles in a Venn diagram. and in, in basically everywhere, those two circles are not overlapping. But when the priest would walk into the Holy of Holies, he was walking into a place where the circles were overlapping. Just a sliver where the circles overlapped. It was the presence of God, the heavenly, passing over into this earthly space. And that's what the, the, the priest was walking into when he walked into the Holy of Holies. He was walking into the, the, the point where the, the Venn diagram meets. And so... Uh, not just anybody was allowed into the Holy of Holies. And the only person who was allowed was the high priest, and that was only once a year. So once a year, the high priest would enter this, this inner chamber, which meant that he was standing in the presence of God. So the people were not allowed in, but there was kind of this way in which the people were with the priest. Okay, So the priest, when he walked in the chamber, the people aren't with him, but in a way, he's representing them. So in the same way, if you were to tour the White House, you would not be allowed into the Oval Office, right? You would not just be able to stroll in. There's like a, a, you know, a Secret Service agent just like, come on in, just sign an executive order. Um, you wouldn't be allowed to do that, right? Because that's, that's for the president. Like the president's presence is in there. You're not allowed in. Now imagine that you're part of like a special interest group, a big special interest group. All the, all the people in that particular group would not be able to walk into the Oval Office, but you could send a spokesperson. 
you could send a representative into the presence of the president, and he could carry all of you on his shoulders, functionally. He could represent all of you before the president. That's what the high priest is doing. He's representing the people before the presence of God. The, the, the people cannot just waltz into the presence of God. This is the point where the heavenly and the earthly overlap. This is a big deal. But this high priest is allowed in to this earthly sanctuary, and he is carrying the people on his shoulders. Does that make sense? You with me so far? It's a cloudy day. Masks make oxygen hard. You know, people are going to doze. Um, you got to check in every now and then. All right, so there's a problem with this whole setup, okay? And it, it's probably an obvious one. The people aren't in the Holy of Holies. The people aren't in that presence of God. And that's an obvious problem. So what that tells us is, is the same thing that keeps on coming up throughout the book of Hebrews, which is uh, what we talked about a few sermons ago, this, this whole, like, this thing wasn't built to last. The planned obsolescence of the old way, right? This thing wasn't built to last. Something better is coming. This wasn't God's final, ultimate plan. And so when the author of Hebrews is looking back on this old system and he's comparing it to what Jesus has accomplished, he he starts to say, well, the, the, the high priest, he could really only take the people so far. He could only take the people so far. And so the author says this whole earthly sanctuary thing, it was really only a shadow. So in, in, in this situation, the, the earthly sanctuary is like the shadows on Plato's cave. It's not that they're not real. It's not that something isn't really going on. Something is really going on. But in order to get at it, you can't just base your whole, you know, in order to get at what's really going on, you have to get out of the cave. So the, the, the author of Hebrews calls the old tabernacle a shadow. It's a shadow of the real thing. And he wants to prove this to us scripturally, so he, he goes back to the moment where the tent was made, where the whole tabernacle was, was laid out. He goes back to Mount Sinai, he goes back to Moses and the presence of God on the mountain, and God is giving him instructions about this tent he's going to build, and the author of Hebrews says, now pay attention to what he says. God tells him, make everything according to the pattern that you see here. So the author of Hebrews says, okay, what do we learn from this? means that the, the tent is based on something, right? The tent is based on something more real, more ultimate than itself. So it's kind of like the difference between a wiffle bat and a Louisville slugger, you know. Uh, well, wiffle bat is not going to knock one into the bleachers. So, like, if, in fact, if you actually manage to connect with a 90-mile-per-hour fastball with a wiffle bat, and it rolls to the pitcher's mound, we will all applaud. Like, that would be considered an accomplishment. You're not going to make it very far. So the wiffle bat is not the real thing. But that doesn't mean that the wiffle bat can't tell you something about a Louisville slugger, the real thing, the real baseball bat, right? It doesn't mean that the wiffle bat can't tell you something real about it. So here's a few of the things that the tabernacle tells us about the real thing. And an interesting little point, so... uh, just to illustrate this further, that word in Greek for pattern, it's the word type. It's saying that this tent was the same type of thing that Moses was bearing witness to in the heavenly realm. So here's what the, the, the tabernacle can tell us about the real thing. First, the earthly and the heavenly are divorced. The earthly and the heavenly are divorced. So we've talked about how God is alienated from people 
or more accurately, people have been alienated from God. We've alienated ourselves. And we know this because in the, in the tabernacle, God is partitioned off, right? There's the courtyard, then the inner sanctuary, and then the, the Holy of Holies, and there's this giant curtain separating God from the rest of the people. So the earthly and the heavenly are divorced. That's the first thing that we can learn about this, the real situation from the tabernacle. Secondly, the earthly and the heavenly are made for each other, right? So uh, I don't know if you guys believe in soulmates. You, you shouldn't. Um, but, if you do, but there is a soulmate, and it's the earthly realm and the heavenly realm, right? The earthly and the heavenly are made for each other. They are made for each other. They belong together. Uh, and so what the tabernacle tells us is that God is in the process of bringing them back together. God is in the process of conducting a remarriage between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. So that's the second thing that we learn. And that, that union is at the heart of all of our deepest longings. So third, there is a place, the third thing that we learn is that there is a place where God and humanity will meet. God and humanity will not be alienated forever. They will come back together one day, and that God is in the process of making that happen. And so what, what the true tent is that this passage is talking about is, is this space where the earthly and the heavenly overlap for all of humanity. But how do we get there? So here's, here's uh, Hebrews 7.23. This is where he gets into it. So, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I'll actually stop there. So, in order for the high priest to make it into that inner room, he would have to make a sacrifice. So, when he carried the people on his shoulders into the Holy of Holies, he would slay an animal for their sin. But not only that, he had to slay an animal for his own sin. Right, so there, there was a weakness up front. Like the, the high priest uh, not only had to sacrifice for the people, but for himself. And so, again, the author looks at this and says, this, like, a sinner can only bring sinners so far. So it's kind of like this. If you had to hop on a train, let's say you had to get out of Dodge, and you're going to ride a train all the way to the end of the line, and so you go to the train station, and you take all your money, and you, you, know, you put it on the counter and say, how far will this get me? And so the, the, the teller counts it up and just says, well, this is no good. You're not going to get to the end of the line. You'll be going the right direction, but you're only going to make it halfway there. That's how the author of Hebrews sees the old priesthood. It, it's, the, the old priesthood can only pay out enough to get us in the right direction. It couldn't actually get us to the end of the line. And, and the problem was because the payment that was being made wasn't good enough payment. We needed a better sacrifice. We didn't need a sinner making a, a sacrifice of animals, we need the perfect one making a sacrifice of himself. And so the author of Hebrews says that the sacrifice that we've been waiting for is Christ. That Christ is without blemish, holy, innocent, unstained, and separate from sinners. So in other words, he's not like the rest of us. When he does something good, he's hiding no ulterior motive. Uh, Everett once said that every calorie of Christ's being was put to the glory of God. 
He is perfect in all his ways. He proved himself through suffering. He proved himself through obedience to the discipline of the Lord at every moment. And he's not, he, he's, it's not just that he's a perfect human. It's that he is the son of God. That he emerges from the bosom of the Father. Begotten, not made. And so the sacrifice of the son is a way more meaningful sacrifice. Firstly, because he's not an animal, but also because he's not a sinner. The text also says that, that his sacrifice was once for all. So in other words, once for all time. That's the, that's the sense of the, the Greek. Once for all time. So in other words, this sacrifice is God's final word for people. The sacrifice of Christ is God's final word against Satan, sin, and death. It cannot be reproduced. It cannot be replicated. There is no need to do again what God has done in Christ. We can never make available again what God has made available in Christ, which is why, despite the fact that I am increasingly grateful for uh, our brothers and sisters within Catholicism, and talk about warriors for the Christian social ethic, even though I'm increasingly grateful for, for, for them and, and what they're doing and, and believe that we ought to be partnering with much of what they're doing, I can't go with them all the way on their view of the, the, the Eucharist. So in, in Catholic teaching, they hold that in the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ is being presented once again to people, but in an unbloody way. And so when the priest announces the words of consecration, the elements turn literally into Christ's body and blood, and the sacrifice is made available to you through that. So you need the priest, and you need those elements, and you need that moment in the Mass in order to have Christ's sacrifice available to you if you take the, if you take the catechism seriously. That makes no sense to me in the face of this passage, that Christ was sacrificed once for all time. We cannot represent Christ Anything else, any attempt to represent Christ is totally superfluous. Christ's sacrifice is made available to us not through a human priesthood, but through his priesthood. Well, that's an aside. Christ is the knock him down, drag him out, nail in the coffin, open and shut, end of the road, mic drop of God's word to humanity. It is the final sacrifice. We cannot add to it. God is made available uh, this sacrifice to us through faith and repentance. And so uh, when Christ died, something happened that sort of illustrated this, that big heavy curtain that separated the inner uh, holy of holies from, the, from all the people, that court curtain was torn in half. And it's this image that the very presence of God, the heavenly presence of God is just broken into the earthly, and that Christ is bringing us into that inner sanctuary of the Lord. He is, we are slung over his shoulders like a lamb over the shoulders of a shepherd, and he carries us into the presence of God. But that's not only good news for us, it's good news for the creation. So I started all this by talking about Plato. And this idea that, that reality is not what meets the eye. Now, Plato had a really... He had a gift for sort of articulating the fact that our deepest longing, the longing that, that's most core to us, is the longing for the heavenly. He didn't call it the heavenly. I'm calling it, Hebrews calls it the heavenly. That's the deepest longing that we have. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says that eternity is etched into the hearts of humanity. 
uh, St. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. What we want most is transcendence. We want God. We want the heavenly. And so what, what we learn is that when Christ brings us into the, the holy of holies, he's giving us what we long for most. Now, in Plato's scheme with the Venn diagram, so imagine the Venn diagram again. In Plato's scheme, what we really want is to leap from the earthly circle into the heavenly circle. But that's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is that the earthly and the heavenly come to overlap entirely. The earthly and the heavenly become one. That's the Christian hope. And so our deepest longing, this like phantom limb that we have, or like an amputee with a phantom limb, that deepest hope will be realized. In the final book of the Bible, there's this moment where, where God creates a new heavens and a new earth, and the, the author imagines it as uh, this giant city descending out of the clouds uh, to us. And, and he, he makes a, a really, you know, he makes a point of saying, and the, the city is shaped like a cube, right? Which just seems like an utterly bizarre thing to say, right? Until you realize that the holy of holies is shaped like a cube. The, the message of the Bible is that the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. The message of the scriptures is that the heavenly and the earthly will become indistinguishable. That God's presence will permeate and charge every facet of life. That the earth itself, creation itself, will be redeemed along with us. It's almost like in reaching into the Holy of Holies with us, Christ grabs it and turns the whole world upside down so that the Holy of Holies, you know, like when you pull a sleeve out of a coat. This is a weird one. I'm pulling this off the top of my head. It's almost like a sleeve where you, you know, like uh, you reach into the end of a sleeve and pull it out so that, that what seems like the inside becomes the outside. I could have also gone with the TARDIS from Doctor Who. Let's forget this one. All right, so it's bigger on the inside, whatever. So the final book of the Bible, all this thing. So the, the earthly and the heavenly are coming together. Christ is officiating a wedding. He is officiating a wedding through his death on the cross. It is a remarriage between the rule of heaven and the stuff of earth. Now, I want to bring this around to the point that comes up again and again in this book, which is Christian perseverance. Remember that, that the whole reason why the author is going on about a lot of this stuff is because he wants Christians to be equipped to persevere. So why is it that this whole way of imagining reality and seeing how that, you know, this whole way of imagining reality, it makes the sacrifice of Christ make sense in a special way? And why, why is this all this, where does all this matter to the day-to-day? Um, I wonder if, if many of you have been following the progress of the Equality Act. So the Equality Act is a, an act that was just passed by the House. Um, I won't go into all the details of it, but basically the Equality Act uh, represents a totally, not just, not just a, a social ethic that we as Christians disagree with, it represents a different way of imagining the world. The Equality Act will, will protect gender identity, um, and, and sexual orientation, those will become uh, protected categories. So that in announcing yourself to disagree, for instance, with 
uh, with some of the tenets of transgender activism, even while being supportive of people with gender dysphoria, if you announce yourself in disagreement with some of the more activist positions, there might actually be legal repercussions for whatever institution you're involved in. There's some obstacles ahead of this act, filibuster, Supreme Court, but if it is signed fully into law, I think that all of us can expect some pressure. But that's only one part of it. What, what our current culture believes about reality is that meaning comes from within. Our culture believes that meaning comes from within. So what you are now tasked to do, and it's a monstrous task, is to plumb the depths of yourself to sort of discover this true thing about whoever you are, and then that's reality for you, and you need to give expression to that. And so, uh, with, for instance, in transgenderism, this ends up going in very dangerous ways because it, in an effort to go against stereotypes, they end up reinforcing stereotypes. A boy says, well, I, I'm kind of nurturing. Every now and then I'll play with dolls. I, I must be a girl. No, you're, you're a nurturing boy. But, but understand that, that what I just said is highly offensive because it's destroying a world. It's destroying a, a, a way of viewing reality. Reality is what's inside to our culture. That is not the Christian metaphysic. That is not the Christian reality. Reality isn't inside. Reality is outside of you. And there is incredible deep meaning stitched into every fabric of this world but you have to be taught to recognize it. You have to be initiated into the way to recognize the meaning that is inherent in the world and in your own body. What the Equality Act does is put into law not just anti-discrimination laws. It's putting into law a different reality, one that Christians cannot responsibly go along with. And so we will have to learn to not live by lies. You'll have to learn how to persevere. And it's this accomplishment of Christ that helps us to persevere. So throughout the ages, Christians have faced marginalization, fines, imprisonment, And more than that, family separation, death. They they have faced all those things. And they're facing them, uh, the worst of it, today. I mean, think about what's happening in Nigeria and Uganda. So why is it that Christians again and again, bar none, uh, even Emma Green, not a Christian, writer for The Atlantic, once, once said, bar none, Christians are the most persecuted people group on the face of the planet, no doubt. So why is it that so many Christians stay the course. It's because of this hope. Our hope is not an earthly hope. It is a heavenly hope. That's why we are able to persevere. So so take, for instance, if you were asked to be courageous for Jesus, but all that he could promise you was sort of imminent uh, 
promises that are going to happen sort of uh, in, the, in the here and now. He'll sort of be with you, but not in death. What you, what you then end up having to do is you can look down the corridor of your life and say, all right, I can be courageous in all these things because Christ has, has promised to deliver me from you know, all these sort of imminent things. But when I get to the moment of death, how am I going to be courageous? You're on your own. If the hope that we have in Christ is only earthly, then your courage only goes up until death. And the fact of the matter is, is that if, you, if, you, if you're going to be cowardly in the face of death, if your discipleship commitment to Jesus is up until death, then you don't have a commitment. You're only truly committed to the things that you'll die for. And so uh, what ends up actually happening, though, is that Jesus gives us this heavenly hope, the, the hope of all creation being redeemed, so that we can actually face death itself, and then because we can face death itself, suddenly it almost works backwards, where suddenly we can face all the imminent stuff. We can face all the immediate earthly challenges too, because there's nothing worse than death, right? So if death itself is something that we can sort of shrug off, then it makes us courageous people from beginning to end. Christian courage comes from Christian hope, and Christian hope is the heavenly hope. We have to recover this hope. And some will say, yeah, but, you know, Christians that are all about heaven, they sort of tend to ignore social issues, that sort of thing. No, no, no. That has not been historically true. In fact, Throughout the ages, when Christians held to this heavenly hope, they were highly active in, in, the, in, the, in the care of, of, of those in need precisely because they were looking forward to a kingdom and they wanted to see glimpses of it now. So all this to say, um, nothing could be coming for us, but something could be. But even if it's not repercussions from the, the Equality Act, something will challenge your faith. And you will have to find yourself in a reality like the one that this passage describes. Because it's that reality in which Christ made his sacrifice. And it's that reality that is the real one. So we have to have discipleship unto the death. And we can. Because Christ has died, but Christ has risen. And Christ is coming again. A Christian dies like a seed. We disappear for a time underground, but in addition to being a good high priest, Christ is a good gardener. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope that we have in you. That you are officiating the wedding between heaven and earth. So, Lord, I I pray for Trinity Community Church that you would let us be a church that perseveres, a church that, um, that at every moment is seeking to, to render you worship with our lives. And God, would you let us bear fruit? Would you not only, uh, like, like Jonathan Portwood said uh, last week, would you not only... Um, protect us from drifting, but would you let us bear fruit 
And already, Lord, I see so much fruit in, in this church, and so I, I praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for the, the love between the saints here. Thank you for the generosity. Um, Lord, would you continue that work? And God, we, we also pray for revival. We pray that throughout our, our country, there would be a return to you, um, which might not look uh, the way that, that, uh, um, that we're told a return to you would look on either side of the aisle politically. I pray that our, our true allegiance would be to you, Lord, that revival would break out um, in Lake County, in Illinois, in the United States, and across the world that you would return us to yourself. And so, Lord, let us covenant with you, um, or rather, let us remember the covenant that we have with you in Christ. Let us follow your way truly. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.